QuickMed Claims presents the Board and Collar 10Q30. We pose 10 questions to emergency medical service leaders from across the United States on key matters affecting EMS nationwide. You'll find their unique responses interesting and thought-provoking, all in 30 minutes. Your host, QMC's Director of Client Services, Gary Harbath. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to QMC's 10Q30 profile. This is an exciting day for us here. Uh, we have a command performance by a, uh, a wonderful gentleman joining us, uh, Sean Kokoskis from the Spalding Rehabilitation Network in Massachusetts is going to be our profile today. And uh, we're glad to have him. For those of you who may have seen Sean before or heard him through our podcast, Sean's been with us a couple times to speak on different subject matters. Uh, one of our most frequent downloads actually is uh, a program that Sean did just a few months ago. I think that was before COVID, Sean. I think it was just before it. Uh, one that was called Difficult Conversations, and it has been downloaded widely across the United States. So uh, you're celebrating great fame today, Sean. So uh, we're glad to have you back again today. I'm gonna drill you with a bunch of questions, kind of like a lightning round in, in, to some degree. And uh, we hope that uh, you'll find today's uh, performance and information that Sean conveys helpful and informative. This is a webinar format. So as much as you can see Sean and myself, uh, we can't see you, but you have the opportunity where you can ask questions. If you go to the bottom of your video screen, you will see a little Q&A button. Uh, I see many of you have decided to remain anonymous today. Okay, I understand that. Um, and some of you are actually out there. So we um, you feel free to ask questions, whether you're on anonymously or have signed in. Uh, we'll take you either way. Just type your question in. I'll pose that question to Sean and we'll move through today's program. So without any further ado, Sean, welcome. And if you could just tell us a little bit about you, your organization, and what your role involves. Thank you. Sure, Gary, it's good to be with you guys again. Uh, so um, I have been in EMS now coming up to about, I think 28, 29 years, I, I forget at this point in time. Um, I spent the bulk of my career as a paramedic working for uh, private services or um, hospital-based services and fire-based services. I made the jump to administration in about 10 years or so ago, and I have been with the Spalding Rehab Network ever since. Uh, we are a um, smaller hospital-based system um, in, in the greater Boston area. One of the things that makes us really unique is that we are based out of a rehabilitation network uh, group of hospitals, not your typical acute care hospitals. So it, it's, it's a much different focus than some of our acute care hospital partners, but it's a lot of fun at the same time. Great. Well, thank you for that. Sean, how about your staffing? How many units? How do you staff? Do you have them all in one location? Do you stage? How do you typically do this? As far as I know, you do a majority of your non-emergent work. But just yeah. I'm curious about that. So we the bulk of our work is non-emergent. We we service three hospitals here in the Boston area. Um, we're all based out of one garage, so we we do use some some dynamic deployment strategies where we do look at where our calls are coming from over the next few hours and, and post our trucks uh, accordingly. Um, we run anywhere from five to seven BLS trucks per day, sometimes upwards of eight or nine, depending upon the volume. And then we run anywhere from two to three ALS trucks um, and a handful of chair car services. We have about 50 members on staff. We're running around 16,000 calls annually across all levels of service. 
And the other uh, interesting point about our department is we're a Monday through Friday organization. We, we don't work nights, we don't work weekends, and we don't, want, don't work holidays. Um, there's no real volume uh, being part of the, the post-acute care world. Uh, so we get to enjoy our holidays off. Well, that's, that's a rarity. <laughs> and if I'm working for you, I'm a, real, I'm a real happy employee. And speaking of that, how many employees do you have overall, Sean? Uh, we have about 35 full-time employees and about uh, a dozen or two um, per diem staff. I see. Sean, I, I know that Spalding is huge in your communities. Um, do you specifically mean the ambulance service itself do any outreach into your communities at all, just uh, for an educational purposes? I'm thinking maybe CPR classes or something along those lines. Uh, we do. I mean, so when, when we talk about community, there's two real there's two paths for community for us. One is within our own network of, of facilities. Um, that's our primary community, but we also do some, some outreach to uh, the local community as well. Some of the things we do for our hospital communities is uh, we're very active in mock codes and, and training on emergency preparedness and emergency responses. Being that we're uh, a post-acute care network, um, there is a, a lower skill set when it comes to managing emergencies. So we kind of help them beef up their skill set. Uh, later on this afternoon, actually, I'm doing some training on IO, like you and I were talking about earlier. And then when it comes to the community stuff, we, we do things such as Stop the Bleed and CPR. We actually participated in a Stop the Bleed event um, at the beginning of a, a large road race in Falmouth late uh, last fall. Um, that went very, very well. And we actually did a Stop the Bleed campaign across the entire network. And I believe we, we hit 400 individuals within uh, an eight hour period on Stop the Bleed. Great. Uh, you, stay, you stay pretty busy. And I think that's one of the keys to success. If you talk to any really uh, EMS organization has a good foundation, they have to have the community understanding and support behind them. Obviously, your your health network does and you're part of that. But uh, how key is that to any any organization? It's not just running the ambulance calls anymore. It's really you have to put yourself out there. And I'm sure you do. And, and, and for us, it, 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 it also goes to show the value that we bring to our system. You know, moving the patients is great. We get them where they need to go. But but it, it brings a different level of value um, for the service, especially where we're owned and operated by the rehab hospital. I see. Great. Um, and I know you're very active in your state organization, but um, how, and across the country, actually, um, how do you connect? Do you connect often with uh, other organizations? Do you have um, formal um, committee councils and that type of thing? We do. So um, uh, Spalding Ambulance is part of the Massachusetts Ambulance Association, and we're also part of the American Ambulance Association, and I am also the... Um, the chair of the education committee for the American Ambulance Association. So from uh, the annual conference to the different webinars that we do across the year, especially with cost data collection and COVID going on now, um, I haven't, I and the rest of our community have the uh, multiple opportunities to get together and kind of connect. Great. Well, I, uh, I am proud to say that my organization is a member of the Massachusetts Ambulance Association. Yes, you are. And the American Ambulance Association. So we have something very much in common, that's for sure. Um, how about within your organization? I recognize that, you know, EMS is very much a changing, changing industry. 
Have you done anything recently as far as in the way of upgrading your clinical care, of delivery of patient care? Anything that you might want to mention to the to the folks listening? Um, as far as direct clinical care, not really. Okay. Um, we have put some different protocols into place to to help our facilities recognize the difference between sick patients and not sick patients. Uh, one of our facilities has a extremely high acuity level of patients. Uh, they typically come straight from the ICU into one of my, my hospitals here in Boston. Um, at any one point in time, I can have multiple heart transplant patients in the building, a couple of LVADs, a couple of bilateral lung transplants, as well as oncology patients and now COVID patients. Um, these patients are extremely complex and trying to arrange for their safe transportation can be very, very challenging. They don't meet the threshold for critical care around here, but um, they still are complex and challenging transports to begin with. Um, some of our spinal cord injury patients have some just outrageous um, clinical requirements uh, that we need to manage during transport. So um, those are more of the, the clinical programs we put into place, working with respiratory, working with the, the different uh, programs inside of Spalding, um, so we can effectively manage those patients. So it's not truly changing clinical practice, it, it's being more aware of the clinical conditions that they have. Our paramedics tend to do a lot of training with respiratory and work res with respiratory to understand a lot of the, the content of um, the, complex, the, the complex needs that our patients have. Great. Are you ready for a couple questions? Sure. Okay, the first one come, came, comes from Arizona, Flagstaff, Arizona, actually. Hi, Arizona. Uh, and it's probably nice and cool out there today is my bet. Um, <laughs> yeah. A little sarcasm. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you're probably familiar with this form they call the Physician Certification Statement Form. Are you familiar with that, Sean? It is the bane of my existence. Yes, I am. <laughs> well, and along those lines, Flagstaff is asking if you have issues with your medics getting those forms completed properly, I'm guessing signature, uh, and what have you done to uh, improve that or monitor that? And second part of the question, do you ever use uh, PCS as part of the employee evaluation? I guess what they're referring to is, you know, you, you got all your PCS forms signed, you get a good evaluation or your 50% ratio or 75. So great question. Um, medical necessities have, have always been and will, I think, always be a challenge until we can get them moved from presumptive to prescriptive. Uh, see if that ever happens. Um, our PCS forms are actually embedded in our patient care reporting system. Uh, and, and it's an electronic format. And in Massachusetts, we have to do two forms. Um, one is for CMS and the other is for MassHealth, our, our Medicaid patients. Sure. So um, the, the system that we have in place actually documents on both at the same time. And we have a few questions that they have to answer. We don't, we're fortunate that we really don't have that much of a struggle getting them to complete the documents, whether it's um, EMS or the hospital staff. Being part of the hospital, it, there's, there's a really strong relationship between um, our team and the nursing staff. And, I have worked uh, with hospital leadership really, really hard to, to educate the staff on what they need to be filling out, how they need to be filling it out. 
and if they don't fill it out correctly, we are right down on the office saying, hey, you got to fill this out and we kick it back to them. Um, I think to our benefit, that's one of the, the big benefits of being part of a hospital network is if the nurse doesn't want to fill it out or she doesn't know what to fill out, I'm calling your nurse manager and saying, hey, let's get some your nurse in for some training. We do do orientation for some of the nursing staff and we do talk about medical necessities. So having that relationship with the leadership team um, <clears throat> and being available to answer those questions um, has really made a big, big difference. Great. Thank you for that. I had to chuckle because before you even finished telling us about your organization, the very first question, uh, that question came in. So <laughs> obviously, I got to get on here and ask this guy about PCS forms or medical necessity. So uh, they're, they're a struggle. You know, um, one of the things that we've done is we've kind of broken it down in, into what is it that we need to link in on the medical necessity. So how do we take a diagnosis and how do we tie it back to some sort of uh, cognitive impairment or physical impairment or some sort of um, mobility impairment that helps justify why they need that stretcher. Um, and I think that path has actually worked really, really well. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's three branches of a tree that they, the, the nursing staff and the clinical staff can use to kind of help guide them on, on why that stretcher is necessary. Okay. Well, good answer, and I hope we answered your question in Flagstaff because I know it was burning well before you got on the call today, so we're glad to field that for you. Uh, and, and second question. To our uh, colleague in, in Arizona, good luck with all your COVID stuff going on down there. Yep. Awesome praise to you guys. And we're going to segue to that here in a moment, but one yep. more question. Uh, does your ambulance crews work in hospital during downtime? Great question. Um, as of that's from Today, Tampa, Florida, by the way. Sorry. No, oh, Tampa, same to you. Good luck with uh, your COVID stuff down there. Be safe. Sure. Um, as of today, no, uh, but we have entered into some dialogue with uh, a couple of the hospitals to begin looking at some of that stuff. We had proposed it a couple of years ago, um, and for a couple of different reasons, it just wasn't the right timing. But now with, <clears throat> with all that's going on with some staffing stuff, uh, we're beginning to look at it again. Again, being a post-acute care facility is trying to find that role where the paramedics would actually fit in really, really well. Uh, we don't have an emergency room. We don't run a lot of uh, high acuity emergent types of stuff where they're gonna be intervening a lot. A lot of it would be helping respiratory transition the patients from the house vent to the portable vent so they can go to therapy. Um, maybe doing some IVs, maybe doing some, some EKG stuff like that. So trying to find that, that path within the hospital has been somewhat challenging, but I think we got a couple of avenues that we're going to be looking at. Um, and we actually had a discussion with one of the um, vice presidents last week to talk about, to, to kind of take it to the next step. I see. Okay. Well, uh, let's segue to this topic that we've all heard way too much about, and you've already mentioned it. Uh, my next question typically deals with patient safety, or excuse me, crew safety, and of course patient safety. Um, in light of the COVID pandemic, can you tell us, just give us an overall, how it's affected you, what have you done to protect your patients and your crews? Uh, I'm going to kind of leave this open, Sean, a little bit for you to kind of, uh, you know, talk about if you would, take a few minutes and, and feel free because uh, as I've done these before with other organizations, um, there's a lot of similarities, but there's a few differences along the way. So feel free to add as much or as little as you wish. 
So for us, our Massachusetts was was struck early in, in the COVID response. We were one of the first hotspots after New York. Um, and as we were ramping up, New York was kind of seeing their peak. So we actually had a bit of a benefit of seeing what worked and what didn't work with, with New York here in Boston. Um, we're also part of a larger network and, and my sister hospitals include Mass General and Brigham and Women's. Two very, very large, well-known hospitals across the globe. And when the COVID patients started to hit their front doors, um, the first thought was, what are we gonna do with these patients once they start to recover? Um, so as the patients were coming through the front door of the acute care hospitals, we were making space within one of my long-term care hospitals here um, to become a COVID recovery center. So your patients that had been vented for 45 days or 50 days or however many weeks they were vented, once they're off that vent, they need some sort of post-acute care type of care. So we worked with, with our hospital to help facilitate that. And when we first started to open the doors, the crews were absolutely terrified. Um, there was a lot of anxiety. Um, a lot of the staff hadn't, they've gone through PPE training, but they hadn't really had to do it for real. Um, so we took our time to the extent that we could and we, we drilled PPE, donning and doffing. Um, we made sure everybody got fit tested appropriately and we worked through that and we got them as comfortable as we could uh, with a lot of the procedures. Um, and we had some real clear developed policies and guidelines that we went over. One of the other things that we did that was at least unique here in Boston is whenever we had a COVID positive patient, we sent a three person crew. The third person acted as a safety officer and they wouldn't engage in any patient care whatsoever. Uh, their job was to watch the two EMTs or the, the, the two paramedics. Their job was to make sure they donned properly or make sure they doffed properly and provide some guidance as they were going about their business inside the patient room or kind of managing that patient. You know, we saw a lot of times where the crew would touch their face and they didn't realize it or they touched the inside of their mask as they were, as they were doffing or donning and, you know, they were risking potential contamination. And having that third person there um, within the first couple of COVID calls that we did, our, the anxiety levels of the crews um, dropped dramatically. Um, we also ended up uh, purchasing a couple of um, uh, decontamination systems where we could clean the, use a, a sprayer type of system to decontaminate the truck. Um, rather than spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes wiping down the surfaces inside the back of the truck, we used a, uh, an ionizing spray um, mister that, that decontaminated the truck in a matter of about four minutes, um, which really worked well. Uh, the other thing that we did is, is I, myself, and the rest of my leadership team made sure we had face-to-face -face touch points with all of our staff. Whether they were moving COVID patients or not, uh, we were reaching out to them, uh, talking to them, saying, hey, how's it going? What's going on? How, how you been? Just having that face-to-face, -face, um, whether we brought them into the office or we saw them on the road or we just touched base with them um, in the middle of the day. Again, just trying to ease that anxiety, knowing that they were going through a lot. Um, we also try to do some things to, to kind of break some of the tension. You know, one night we ended up having a pie throwing 
party. They all got to throw pies at me, the boss. Um, <laughs> it, it was it was just just a way to kind of you know I had we had seen that the crews were kind of getting over the top and in stress. It was just a way to kind of bring that stress level down. It was just a great night. Everybody laughed and joked, and they all have horrible aim, so it wasn't too too bad. Um, but it was just just a way to kind of just bring everybody's back down to a manageable anxiety level. I didn't want to take all the anxiety away because if you take away that anxiety, you get complacent. So having that, that stress level there and that anxiety level there works really, really well to, to keep people um, focused on the task at hand. And you know the results have been fantastic. We, we had a staff meeting last night where we talked about our COVID response. You know, there's some things that we didn't do so well on. There's some things that we did do well on. Um, and I think the overall, the, the, the two biggest comments were about the, the use of the safety officers and the communication that we had with our team and, and having that face-to-face. -face. That's great. Great information. And I hope your crews and you and your families continue to stay safe. Thank you. Tough, tough world we're living in. But, uh, and I, we were talking before we started today. Uh, I told Sean, I hope he was wrong. Sean's, Sean kind of felt that, you know, there's still more to come. And I said, I respectfully disagree and hope you're wrong. <laughs> Um, so let's let's hope I'm right on this occasion. One of the one of the few times I hope I'm proven wrong. <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. All right. So uh, one question came in here from over in Colorado, just across the way. Yeah. Um, do you transport ventilator patients, ventilator dependent patients? Yes, we do. We transport a lot of ventilator dependent patients. Um, we have. Uh, like I said, we have a very complex group of patients here. We have a lot of lung transplant patients. We have a lot of um, spinal cord injury patients, um, traumatic brain injury patients. Uh, you know, um, think of all the, the horrific accidents that, that traditional EMS brings into the ER. Um, my hospitals are the places where they go after their ER care. Uh, they come here for that rehab therapy and we transport a lot of ventilator patients. Um, I guess a follow-up question to this, although it's not coming from the same person, this one's coming out of New Mexico, is what is your staffing pattern for ventilator-dependent patients? We use a, um, we use a paramedic basic staffing model. Um, most of the patients that we have that are vent-dependent, they're chronic vent-dependent, and we're typically trying to wean them off the vent. Uh, I would have to say all of our all of our patients are that are vent dependent are trached as well, uh, so we got the combination of of trach and vent management that we need to do. Uh, we do have some unique populations here, such as some of the spinal cord injury patients. And to get clinical real quick, some of our our spinal cord injury patients are on a specific protocol where their tidal volumes on the vents are 1,200 cc's, 1,300 cc's, and they have a lot of dead space um, extra tubing attached. Uh, so kind of the first time you see a patient with a tidal volume of 1400, you're like, oh my God, what's going on? Um, so that's where the, the work we do with our respiratory teams really benefits us and, and helps out because um, they do get to spend time. And for some of the more complex patients, we will send respiratory with us just to kind of help. Because again, we have a lot of arts patients, a lot of patients with really, really horrible lung disease. Um, that don't traditionally do well on portable vents. Understood. Thank you. So let me uh, go back and ask you, we'll kind of move away from COVID 
Um, uh, but I wanted to ask you a couple of questions relative to current topics within the industry. And first of which is, um, what are you doing to retain quality employees? Because as we know, that's one of the big issues, keeping good, you know, it's one thing to hire them, but to keep them and keep them on. Um, other than the pie throwing contest, uh, what have you been doing? Um, we are fortunate that our turnover is not like the rest of the industry. Um, we have folks that come and stay with us for quite some time. I have some people that have been here for 30 years, 25 years, on average 10 to 15 years. Uh, but what we do is we, we create an environment where it is a team. Um, the, the staff recognize their importance to the department. Um, we try to include them in a lot of the decisions. I am always asking for their thoughts and opinions. Um, we have some programs in place within the hospital for, from a, a payroll and benefits perspective that, that they tend to like. Um, we also have a professional development ladder that the crews can enroll in where if they meet certain criteria, they can get a financial reward. Um, and we have different tiers. So if you meet the first level of professional development ladder, you get a $1,500 check. Second level, you um, once you meet the requirements, you get a 2% uh, pay raise, 2 or 3% pay raise. And then if you meet the third tier, you can get another 3% pay raise in addition to all of your other step raises and stuff. Um, so there's some financial benefit to it as well. Um, and it, you know, I've worked in, in numerous services over the course of my career. So I know what I didn't like about some of those services. And, you know, as the leader of this organization, one of the things I've tried to do is, is not have those kind of struggles um, and challenges here. Um, and it seems to be working out well, I think. Well, you've got some longevity there, so you must we, be doing something. We do, something. we do. Um, and again, you know, we're a small organization, a smaller organization, so we have the ability to to touch base with people on a regular basis. And, and again, having that personal interaction, my, my office door is always open. And when my door is shut, people kind of freak out. They're like, oh my God, Sean's door is shut. What do I do? Um, you know, so we have an open door policy. They have full access to me and my leadership team. And, you know, knowing that, you know, the care that we give them, it, it's honest and genuine, you know. That's good, great. You're a great leader, Sean. So Thank we're you. coming to the end of our 30 minutes because it off goes awful fast, awful it, fast. Uh, it does. Uh, and I would just like to ask you if you would just uh, want to share any other interesting facts, anything at all for the good of the order as we close out today's program. Uh, we, you know, coming from uh, a field provider role and, and, and into a leadership role, what was a bit of a weird transition and it's interesting when we talk about career highlights and whatnot. For us, one of the defining moments of our department was back in 2013. Uh, we were in the middle of finishing up building a brand new hospital and we were getting ready to move 115, 120 patients from our old 40 year old hospital into our brand new hospital. And the spring of 2013 is when we were going to move. 
and our department was heavily involved in the planning of that process. We had about 10 hours to move 120 patients and about a week and a half before the move date, we had the Boston Marathon bombing. It shut our city down. It, it, it was one of the most intense times up here in Boston. And pretty quickly we knew that the move was, was gonna be in jeopardy and it was gonna be different than what we had planned for because we knew that a lot of the survivors from the marathon were gonna be coming to us as part of the post-acute care world. And it just added a different level of anxiety and stress because um, at the time they still hadn't caught the, the two gentlemen who blew up the, uh, who um, detonated the bombs. So there was just a lot of unknown uh, at that moment in time. But as an organization, we, we ended up getting together and kind of working through it. And on the day of the move, we, everything just fell into place. And we, we were able to accomplish the mission 45 minutes ahead of schedule. Um, and to say it was perfect, I, I think would, would would capture it. It was absolutely flawless, you know. Um, and I think it's been now just over oh, seven years, my God. Uh, and it is still talked about uh, across the department. It's still talked about across the hospital about how we, how we, um, our department, as well as our network, was able to pull it off, um, given all that was going on. Well, Sean, that was a, a day in not only uh, Massachusetts and Boston history that I'm sure you won't forget up there, but across the country, um, such a sad, sad occurrence. And my hat's off to all the healthcare team and your team that uh, was involved and involved even be above and beyond with what you just explained here. So uh, an incredible, incredible day uh, in many respects, sad day in some and uh, what you guys did was very positive. So thank you for that. And thank you for sharing this information. Um, we've enjoyed having you, Sean. Uh, it's been my pleasure. I have been to Boston uh, before COVID. Um, I was actually in New Hampshire and, and had a flight out of Logan. And um, <laughs> I will tell you, that is some of the worst traffic I've ever seen in my life in Boston. <laughs> Oh, I hit it every day coming and going to work. <laughs> Don't like, have to tell me. It didn't matter where you turned, right, left, otherwise, GPS, no, no GPS. I, I don't know how no. you do it. So uh, God bless you for that. But uh, really, thank you for being a gentleman and a participant in all our programs. Um, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, are you open to that idea? And if so, Ab you absolutely. Um, you can email me at skakowskis at partners.org. S-K-U-K-A-U-S-K-A-S -K -K at partners.org, P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S. And I can spell my last name again if people want. Um, you can find me uh, on LinkedIn. You can find me through the American Ambulance Association. Uh, if you Google Kakowskis, you're going to find me. There's only one of me, thank God. Not many out there. And Not if many. If you struggled with Sean's last name, feel free to email client services at Quick Med Claims. Maybe a little bit easier spell there. Uh, <laughs> and we will provide Sean's contact information to you. So, Sean, thanks to you. And thanks to our Thank you, Gary. 31 participants that were stuck with us today from 
Arizona to Maine from Florida to, uh, looks like we had a few in Iowa today, so that's great. And uh, I, I wanted to thank you all. Thanks for coming. This broadcast will be available um, on our board and caller podcast presentation. I should be able to get it up there in a few days for you. And uh, feel free to download it, share it with your friends. And again, if you have additional needs or inquiries, uh, don't hesitate in writing us or Sean. And I know we'll glad to help you. Sean, I'm going to ask you at some point in the future, I'm going to have you back for another one of your lectures. If you don't mind, I'll kind of figure that out here in the months ahead. Uh, if you don't mind. Great. Great. Well, with that, I'll just tell everybody, hey, be safe out there and Thank you once again for attending today's presentation of QMC's 10Q30 profile. Thanks, Sean. Have Thank a great you. day. Have a good day, everyone.